Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're here with episode 79, and our guest today is Lars Lindstrom, from a, who is the CEO and co-founder of ReadCloud. ReadCloud was created as the world's first social ebook reading software for schools, which allows teachers and students to share annotations directly inside ebooks. The platform is used by over 300 schools in Australia and assists schools with the transition from physical books to digital textbooks, regardless of their device platform. ReadCloud offers over 200,000 ebooks from the world's biggest publishers. That's not the start of Lars's story, though. Um, there's been a lot more pre this, and that's where we're going to start today, Tony. Yeah, thank you, Jamie, and welcome, Lars. It's really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to us. I know you're a busy man. No, thank you, guys. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, uh, I do know that even though you work uh, in supplying books for the school industry, you don't stop when they go on school holidays, so it's not quite the same. So, um, and being, yeah, so I'm being the CEO of an ASX listed company. It is, um, you know, it's a busy time. Uh, it's a busy time for you. So congratulations. But what I want to do is for our listeners, um, now, I want to give a bit of a background because you're not this, you're not a 18 year old uh, kid who's created an algorithm and a startup company and is, um, and then has created the next, you know, Facebook, uh, you have a bit of experience on your side and very strong experience on your side. Um, so even though you could say read, well, read cloud certainly was a startup. Uh, came from an idea, but in saying that, though, you have a lot of history. So if it's okay, can we just go back and uh, touch on some of your history where you first started in investment banking? Uh, well, you've got a lot of experience here, but if we could go back to, you know, your your manager at KPMG Corporate Finance uh, back in the late 90s, uh, associate at Deutsche Bank, uh, director of strategy at Platinum Private Equity, associate director of Rothschilds, um, a director at, um, was it FIH, uh, Corfing Investment Banking. So you obviously have a quite a history in private equity and investment banking and some pretty big names there. Yes, that's how I started out. That's how I actually ended up in Australia because I, when I finished uni in, in Copenhagen, I um, was lucky enough to get a secondment to, to Melbourne, to KPMG Corporate Finance. They actually had the second largest um, office in, in the world after London because they did a lot of the Kennet privatizations. Um, so, and then, you know, met my wife, uh, now ex, but <laughs> Melbourne girl and had a few kids. And then I was only there about a year. And then I went to Deutsche Bank um, just because there was an opportunity to get into sort of the really the big hitting tier one banks that uh, do all the, the, the really big deals just i was 26 years old so it was time to just put your head down and work hard and learn and and then as a lot of investment bankers will probably admit to then it's a matter of working your way out of it after a while so it took me 10 years to, to find my way out of it and it is interesting though, I mean, at a very young age, you were involved in working in some really big deals. I mean, even with, um, you know, at Deutsche Bank, uh, they did the M&A work, mergers and acquisitions work in the, uh, with ANZ and ING. So, you know, was, there was a, a four odd billion dollar, four odd billion dollar merger and acquisition. Yeah, that took about a year and a half to pull off. So that, I lost a lot of sleep over that one. 
Yeah, so, so all of a sudden you woke up and you were 27. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's, um, that would have been interesting. It, it was, and, and it, it was a really complicated deal because it was a joint venture. Yeah. We had four different parties wanting to do the JV, and then you had to do reciprocal due diligence on all four of them in parallel and legal work in parallel until you you know, we ended up with ING. Yeah. So it was a lot of work. Yeah. But then you did, um, as you say, you started to venture out and you, you do see that a lot of people who had very good positions in mergers and acquisitions and private banks uh, do end up taking board positions on companies. Uh, they become investors themselves and start taking board positions in companies that they've uh, done advice on and things like that as well. So you see that quite often where they get out of working for the brand and start uh, being an owner of the company. And I think that's that's something that you then did in the media. Um, yes, that was my way out. Um, I've been thinking about it for years. Yeah. Find your way out. But I was I, I got a call from an old friend in Copenhagen saying, come back, I've got a job in this you know, he's, he's started a, a branch of uh, an investment bank. Um, and then we did a deal where we were trying to buy the biggest newspaper group in Scandinavia for about a billion dollars in a, in a partnership with Apex Partners. And we were, I, I ended up telling the client not to increase their price in the end when I thought it was not worth it anymore. So we ended up walking away they then turned around and said, let's just do the newspaper ourselves if you want to come and join it. And I said, yep, that's my opportunity to get out. And so I ended up being the CFO of this, this startup newspaper, which was a house distributed free newspaper. So like getting the Herald Sun tossed on your lawn for free. And within 12 months, it became the most read newspaper in Denmark. And the guy I actually ended up doing it with was the first investor in Skype. Morten Lund, and all of a sudden, I was in, in a world of entrepreneurs, people who have built things and who have taken risk and, and, and sometimes silly risks, but, but sometimes risks that pay off. And I found that to be so much more exciting than just to put my tie and suit on and go in and do some spreadsheets for some clients and, and all that sort of stuff. So I ended up saying yes to that role, which was the the CFO of it and, and we raised about a hundred million euros and because it's expensive we had a thousand employees you got to, first you got to uh, write the newspaper we had a hundred journals and then you got to distribute it we had 700 distribution people to you know, toss these newspapers around on people's lawns and then you got to wait for the uh, readership numbers to come in to start selling advertising so it, it was it was a very gutsy play. Um, at, you know, it was, we're talking 2006 when newspapers were still sort of going well. Um, but we were unfortunate with timing because um, when the GFC hit, we, we actually had to close the newspaper the, the week after Lehman Brothers cracked because we could see the entire advertising pipeline just go down the drain. Um, so that was that was a bit of a bitter moment, but I, I think you know. Welcome to the world of entrepreneurship. That's part of entrepreneurship. I think you learn from everything. You learn from, and you particularly learn from the ones that fail. 
You know, mm. what else could you have done? I mean, in, in this case, I think it, it was just timing. I mean, the, the, the world just went south and there was not much we could do about it. But it, 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 it was, it, it, I suppose in me, ignited this excitement around building something. It was the first time in my life where I felt like I would get up on a Monday morning and not go to work. I would go to try to improve the newspaper and try to, you know, grow it and, and have fun. And that was an entirely different thing coming from 10 years of investment banking. I mean, getting up for your work in progress uh, meeting at 7A on a Monday, that was work. But this, this, this didn't feel like it. And I'm, I'm actually I'm dedicated myself to, to wanting to do that the rest of my life. And I'm feeling like that with, with ReCloud. That was part of the reason I, I, I got into it. And part of the reason that I, I love it today is that it, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like just building things. Interesting you say that. I, um, I had one of those moments at about two o'clock this morning where I just woke up with this magnificent idea and I ended up going back into bed at about 6am. So it was, um, and I was in contact with a colleague over in New York and he said, Tony, I've just realised what the time is now. Why aren't you in bed? <laughs> so, 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 so you go to bed. But the thing is, as you said, it's not work when you when you actually uh, love what you do and you you are that entrepreneur and it must have been a different mindset for you though of at first of because you would have been taught in a certain way um i know you know deutsch like uh, mckinsey and you know and other groups and even rothschilds they have their set ways of the way they do things and as you said you know um i know you do a lot more in those things than just spreadsheets uh for clients but to get out of that mindset to all of a sudden this entrepreneurial mindset dealing with people or working with people like morton lund who's you know quite um for those who don't know him quite an amazing startup investor um he's taken some big punts and done really well out of them so um so based on that how how does that mindset change in a young man uh looking at the next the next phase of his life i like i think you can you you get taught very well at, at the big investment banks in in some very very important disciplines you know in understanding financial markets in in being able to do dcf spreadsheets uh, do powerful presentations laying out a business strategy all of those things that you help your clients with so they can sell their company or buy their company or raise money and those skills still apply in the startup world you, you actually do the same thing you're presenting to people trying to convince them to put money into something that is out in the future that no one can really predict so I think the skill set I've, I've taken all of that with me, which I then could help with at the newspaper. I could help with with, with Morden and, and others. When when you're trying to start up a company, you, you need people, you need capital, and and you can't predict the future. And you're a disruptor. And you, the, the hard facts are that nine out of ten startups fail. So you so bringing all that sort of skill set from investment banking into a startup is is actually quite valuable. But, but maybe to answer your question about how yeah, your mindset does have to change a bit because you are taking more risk and you've and you got to become a bit more inventive in the ways you do things. You certainly can't be shy and not just pick up the phone and, and talk to everybody and, and, and find a way when it's tough. And then you have to, the, the, the biggest mindset 
change is that you have to, well, live with the fact that you're not going to get paid for a few years. You're going to have, to have, a, little <laughs> of, have a little bit of cash in the bank so you can take the punt. Um, yep. and, and when it gets tough, then you've got to go out and raise some more money. Um, and then to see the light of, at the end of the tunnel can sometimes be really hard. I mean, I had to learn this sort of, it's called the entrepreneurial pendulum where you, you know, eight times a day can go from, this is going to be great to this is not going to work. <laughs> and you're going yeah. to have to learn how to stomach that. Uh, and, 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 and either, you know, walk away or, or, or keep going. And then that, that's really the hard choice. And that, I don't think there's a recipe for that. There's not a book you can read that can tell you when to walk and when to, I mean, the, I remember sitting on the weekend, midnight Sunday with Morden, discussing whether we should print the newspaper tomorrow. Yeah. That was yep. a moment, but at that point, we, we actually had more cash in bank. We had more investors lined up. We could have kept rolling for another couple of months, but looking at the numbers was just a, nah, we can't do it. And it's gonna be painful, but we're gonna have to go into administration and sack a thousand people. You know, that, that, those sort of tough calls, I suppose, gives you experience that, that helps you to, to because I think that is a tricky one when you're in a startup. You, you've got to know when to fold. Hmm. And, then and I think it's interesting you say that because um, I sometimes think these nine out of 10 startups that fail aren't necessarily because there was a bad idea or something that couldn't be monetized and actually be quite successful. But the people who are the startup founders, you know, no different than I was as a 22 year old, you know, 28 years ago. Um, but the startup founders, they don't have that experience. They don't, they, you know, you know, the idea of not getting paid for work, the, especially say some of the startups uh, now, the idea of, uh, well, it's quite easy. We just come up with this idea to build an app and then, you know, someone will give us $100 million. It's, it doesn't quite work like that, but they haven't had that experience of running businesses, understanding mergers and acquisitions, understanding that when you do raise capital, uh, you don't just go and spend it willy-nilly. There's a discipline to it. There's a discipline to actually growing that business. I agree with you 100%. Actually, if you look at most of the successful U.S., uh, startups and, and unicorns, they're done by people in their sort of mid, mid to late 30s. Yes. And people who have failed before. Um, a lot of them have failed in business before. They've, they've tried something, failed, um, gone on to the next thing. So it's, um, yeah, well, but that is true. It's hard to raise money in Silicon Valley if you haven't gone bust once. Yes, so it's uh, very true. Uh, going bust in Silicon Valley, though, can be a bit higher numbers than what I than what I uh, would if I went bust. So it's uh, there's a, you know going bust in Silicon Valley can mean a hundred million dollars. So now you went then you from there you actually went into the world of um, venture capital. So it's um, you spent a bit of time at uh, Lundex Wine. I believe you came back to Melbourne at that stage too. Yeah, I came back uh, late 2008. Uh, my now ex-wife is a Melbourne girl and thought it was a bit too cold in Copenhagen and, and I tend to agree with that. So I, <laughs> I prefer Melbourne. It's my home now and I've, I've, I've lived here 20 years now. So 
Yeah, no, it is interesting though that um, the comparisons between sort of Copenhagen and Melbourne are quite similar. They've, uh, you know, Denmark and Australia probably have the two best retirement systems in the world, and then both uh, both countries have extremely expensive real estate. So it's uh, yeah, and decent healthcare and correct, uh, yeah, and and I would say similar psyche and and yep. humor and. I always thought that if I'd you know, just gone south of the border to Germany, I'd be further from home than if I'd moved to Melbourne. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, very true. So you, you did, I mean, with that experience, you're the Chief Executive Officer of Startup Victoria uh, for a while, and then we move into Reed Cloud. So what I would love, uh, you know, a bit of a story on Reed Cloud is it's not all of a sudden you're, you're founded a company and now it's an ASX listed company and running successfully. Uh, basically, there was the same scenario, startup, your money, not getting paid. So do you want to start talking about the journey of uh, Reed Cloud, you know, and we'll touch on things like uh, how did it start? And then we'll get into how did you raise capital? How did you do all these things? So if we can start from day one, one of Reed Cloud. Yeah, that was me coming back to Melbourne and this guy gave me a, a, a DM on tw Twitter in the yep. early days of Twitter saying, do you want to meet up for a coffee? And he had this idea about social annotations or eBooks and revolutionizing eBooks. So I, I set up the company and put the seed capital into it and he ran off and, and tried to build it. And a few years went past and you know, I kind of learned the hardware that software is, is difficult. Uh, it's easy to get to 80%. It's very hard to get to 100%. So I, I was doing the, I probably did three or four capital raises. You know, I was just sitting on the board and, and I wasn't getting paid. He wasn't getting paid either. So, and we were just hitting ourselves up against brick walls all the time. And, and, this, and the software was difficult. So it wasn't until 2014, so we're talking five years after you know, we set up the company. It's this old Silicon Valley saying that it takes seven years to become an overnight success. So in 2014, I raised, I think, half a mil and decided to go into the business full time as the CEO and also decided to teach myself how to do a little bit of coding and you know, got a book on Ruby on Rails and found my way a Linux, uh, around a Linux server and a, and a Mongo database and, and got my hands a bit dirty on it. And I could see that some of those consultants that we were using at the time weren't quite doing what they were meant to do. Um, and then the big coup for me really or for the company was to, that I finally convinced one of my friends uh, who's now our business partner and CIO, Darren Hunter, to come into the business after he'd been you know, on the sideline for, for and I, I think I talked to him for three, four years before he finally then decided to come in, in, in May, 2015, I came in February, 2015. And really I, I consider that the start of the, the real start of the, the, the startup, if you like, yeah. is it, 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 we were in two schools, software was terribly buggy. Um, it, it wasn't a business really. Um, but, we set out to, to build one and then you fast forward. So Lars, I was going to say, Lars, where, where's that, that mindset of, you know, you of deciding to continue rather than just saying, folding and saying, I've lost my money. 
So where, where, where was that switch, that mindset? Because you must have had some moments where you're thinking, do I continue here um, or do I go out and do something else? Um, so where, where was that passion, that love that drove you to continue? Where'd that come from? Or what was that mind switch? I, I just knew somewhere inside that kids are going to read books on computers and that's not going to change. It's not like the physical book's going to stay forever. And, 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 and I, I felt like working in education and, and trying to make things better for teachers and students, you know, was a, it's a nice feeling. Um, and I, I, I knew somehow that we could get there, but obviously not a hundred percent, particularly when we were only in two schools, but I also know enough about what sort of the successful companies, what they often talk about is that you've got to surround yourself with um, very smart people. And if, if you can, you, you'll never do it alone and you need to have this sort of team team set. And I, you know, I once got the advice that, oh, you shouldn't hire someone that, you know, they might come take your job. And I said, well, I, I'm a large shareholder. If, if they're better than me to be the CEO, then fantastic. I stand to win from it. I can't hire on the basis that I don't want someone that, you know, might take my job one day. You know, that, that's the wrong philosophy in my mind. I think you should hire the best possible people you can find. And it's part of my job as a CEO is to hunt down talent wherever I see it to continue to build the business. And, I, and then because the momentum started to come and all of a sudden I got Darren involved, we signed an agreement with Office Max, all of a sudden we were in 26 schools, then we we're in 50 and then we said, all right, let's list this thing. And then, you know, today we're in over 360 schools just, to, just in, in two years. So, you know, all of a sudden we're in a comfortable place, but it was just all of a sudden, I think you saw saw something coming and you, and you believed the idea was still right. It just, you just hadn't put the right pieces of the puzzle together yet. Um, I, th I think that's when it sort of switched. I want to go back just about, oh, about 30 seconds of what you just said there, which I love hearing. Um, the, the book by Jim Collins, Good to Great, he talks about the difference between a level four leader and a level five leader. And a, that that level four leader can be that person who is um, is out there, is energetic, is, you know, it's it's magnificent. It's, um, uh, what was the guy's name who was the CEO and founder of our WeWorks? Adam, was it Adam? Someone, um, I've forgotten his name. Uh, but he was this larger than life character. It was all about him. He, he was going to change the world. And every time he could get in front of, you know, if he, if he wasn't smoking a joint with a staff member, every time he could get on, you know, in the press and things like that, this absolute larger than life character. And of course the whole thing imploded. Um, the great companies though, what's actually quite interesting is that the leaders do look at, there's, there's a chapter in there about getting people on the bus. The first thing is, uh, getting the right people on the bus, but then the right people in the right seats on the bus, like like a soccer team. There's no use playing David Beckham as goalkeeper. Uh, you know, he's, it's not that he's not a great player, but he's not a goalkeeper. It's a good book. And, and I, yeah. the things that Darren and I often talk about 
or have over the years talked about is that, you know, we really work as a team and we actually don't think we could have pulled this off either of us alone. Yeah. It, it yep. really is our sort of daily strategic deliberations on what we should be doing that has created just about every interesting idea or direction we've taken and you know that it really is a team and and i often we, we bought this business ait um 18 months ago and, and the owner after we acquired it 100 percent came into the offices and said hi boss and i go mate i'm not your boss we're, we're just a bunch of mates having fun doing this thing so don't yeah. do that again yeah, but that that is the that is a company. From my experience, um, what I've seen is when the leader is setting up the next line of management for success. Not so a lot. A lot of these larger than life leaders um, just set up the companies for failure because they're setting up their success. They want to be the person who got them from there to there. Um, you know, so you, what you've done is bringing in those people, and as you said, a bunch of mates working together. Um, that's where the success is because that's you're you're all humble. You know, you turn around, you say that this wouldn't have happened without the two of us working together. You know, and that's that's where you can see if you've got the right people, which read. Cloud definitely have, and I know a number of the people, or a couple of your senior people there, obviously, um, as well. But you've got the right people, so that's where you become a good company to a great company because there are still 2,400 schools left for Read Cloud. Oh, sorry, there are about 2,100 schools left for Read Cloud. Is that right? Uh, to get us okay. clients? And there's the whole vet and schools area, and there's the broader vet market. There's plenty of other avenue for us, but, but just to round off on that comment about leadership and, and management. I mean, one of the things that has helped us, I suppose, is that we're all fairly large shareholders in it. So you don't get to that situation which you see in a lot of large companies where management only have options and all yes. they care about is pushing the share price up. So they'll go out and say and do things and then they might just get the run, pick up their options, and then leave for the door. Whereas I'm a 10% shareholder in Reachout. I, I, I want it to be, you know, a $50 million company that, you know, pays me nice dividends and things like that, you know? So I have a different sort of motivation, I suppose, on, on how to posture. Well, as of yesterday, you're valued at 38 million, so you're not that far off it. Uh, sorry about that. I, I, I meant my shares being worth Oh, that's million. okay. That, I was going to say, uh, I, I thought you would have had bigger goals than that. <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but it, it's, it is that um, scenario that you, you have built something and it will be a great company. But just, so I just want to raise one thing for our listeners. Where Read Cloud, where you differs is, you know, Lars, you and I, our generations, we've probably still got uh, bag straps on our shoulders somewhere from carrying you know 15 kilos of books to school when we're only weighing 30 kilos as young kids uh every day and you know i, I was a horror for losing books uh, especially when i hadn't done my homework um in other words 
the dog always seemed to eat that page out of my book where the homework was meant to be. Uh, but it's, uh, that's how my books got lighter. But you've actually, you, you Read Cloud is a disruptor on that basis with the schools and helping the children. So, you know, it, it's not just an idea that's come to fruition. It is a disruptor in actually with even with kids being able to uh, work uh, at school a lot easier and teachers actually being able to interact with children in devices that they're all they were born with basically yeah that's right that's one of the powerful things that i often get this question from investors you know about well are you just taking heavy books out of backpacks and i, and I answer it with no we're doing much more than that mm. Is we're enhancing the, the learning outcomes and the way that teachers and students interact. There's a, there's a lot of research out there to say that when you do collaboration, you're much more likely to actually retain the information that you've learned rather than just rote learning when it comes in one ear out the other. Uh, so we see ourselves as, as, as improving, uh, making students smarter and, and, and teachers better and, and giving them tools so that they um, can go about doing what they're good at. And for every parent who's paying school fees, that is, that's exactly what you want to hear, isn't it? About you, when your kids go into school. So better outcomes for you, for the kids. Exactly. Yeah. So it's okay. So if we look then you've gone from idea to not getting paid for a number of years, to pouring money into read cloud, uh, to saying this, this is great. We're not giving up on it and now building it and you're listing it. I have a lot of clients who are sort of at that stage of the next, uh, do they pass down to the next generation? Do they list the company, uh, et cetera? You do have to have a passion and understanding because there's certainly a, a very different set of rules when you are a privately owned company, running your own privately owned company or family owned business, what there is in uh, running a listed business. So the question I have for you, Lars, is that when a company does become listed, you bear your soul. Everyone knows what you're earning. Everyone knows uh, the company's profitability, the PE ratios. Uh, you, have, you have to make very, um, uh, accurate uh, presentations to the ASX, you know, so your accounts have to be stellar. Um, so it's so based based on all of that, uh, was it a hard decision to actually do that and go to a listing? No, it was an easy decision for us. And, um, you know, it depends on what industry you're in. You know, if you're in the industry, you're selling, you know, very critical system, critical software to schools, it's a positive that everyone knows what your numbers are and that you are, have got a balance sheet and then you are making money and that you're, you know, a, a respectful company that has to announce anything it does and, and can't be in any way deceitful. I mean, that, that you know, you, you can't be more trusted than that. So as a private company, you know, you can do all sorts of marketing exercises that may not be entirely correct but as a listed company, you can. So it really has helped us with the trustworthiness for our client base. And, and also it, it, it's accelerated our growth tremendously. Remember when we listed in February, 2018, we had a historic revenue of $600,000. And this year, only 18 months later, we, we've done seven and a half million revenue and exploded in our, in our growth. Um, and, and 
part of the what I think is, is really beneficial of being listed is, is the the ability to to free yourself up to 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 think more strategically and not do some of this sort of day-to-day -day mundane stuff that you used to do. When you're a private company, it's like, you know, every dollar you spend on a consultant or an accountant it comes out of your pocket and, you, and you, you tend to get a bit tight and then you might just work 80 hours a week to do all these things yourself. But that actually is counterproductive to, to growing business in, in my view. I think you need to free yourself up to be able to just spend a day thinking about where should you be in three years time and what's your competitors doing? You know, what, what product should you, you know, what, how can you improve your product? Those things are way more important than you just doing the day-to-day -day stuff. I mean, I used to knock on school doors and call principals all day long, but you know, you can hire for that sort of stuff. So when we raised 6 million bucks in, in the listing, we hired a lot of people. And all of a sudden, Darren and I were, were free to just have these sort of free-flowing conversations about you know, what's next and how, how do we disrupt faster? And then you know, we, we bought this business, Australian Institute of Education and Training, um, and I would, I would, we wouldn't have bought that business if we were a private business because we wouldn't have had the bandwidth, we would have had to go and raise money, it would have taken too long, it would have run away from us. But when you were a listed company and you, we bought that with 80% script, you know, we did it in four weeks. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden it, that business had 900 K revenue when we bought it and it's done two and a half million this year in just in 18 months, because we, we could free the owner up to do what he was good at. He was actually you know, he's fantastic at, at, at selling the product, but the whole admin side and, and invoicing and all that we could pull into HQ and, and he wouldn't have to do it anymore. So that put it on steroids. And we really like that model of, of just finding talented people, buy the business, help them out with back end. And, and if it's synergetic to our main business, which, which Vetting School is, it's just a, really another product in, inside year 11 and 12. It, it, I just think that there is there are far more benefits being listed to going down the VC route because when you, when you do sell out to a VC, they're gonna, you're gonna have one guy calling you every Monday morning and saying, how are you going? And, and if it's oh. not going well, he's, he's gonna, gonna ride you. And whereas when you're a listed company and you have, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000 shareholders, and, and you can't actually talk to them. You can only make announcements when there's something that is price sensitive that has to come out. You can't have a conversation. So it, it frees you up to just focus on building the business, which I think is tremendous positive. So basically what you've done is you've, uh, you've made two plus two equals six without smoke and mirrors. <laughs> so it's, uh, like yes, yeah, so, so freeing, freeing up people to actually do what they're magnificent at and actually having other, you know, and so everyone actually doing that, as you said, you know. Well, and, and creating this culture like that come back to this leadership where, where I, you know, I, don't pretend to be the boss and I don't, I don't just make calls and say, it's my call. Uh, you know, it, it really is still, you know, Darren and I will make a decision and, 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 you know, we'll consult with people and we'll, you know, we're inclusive and, and cause we're all shareholders and, and we've actually never had a disagreement. It, it's, it, we just, 
the, the way we, we work, I think, strategically is we spend about an hour a day um, coming up with ideas and beating them up from every angle until some of it sticks. Yep. Okay. So in closing, uh, what is next for ReadCloud? And what you can say, obviously. <laughs> oh, uh, continued growth. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can say that there's a lot of uh, M&A opportunities coming across your desk at the moment, as you can imagine with, with the pandemic, a lot of business are for sale. So we're obviously having a look at uh, what could be interesting acquisitions. Yeah, so it's, um, that would be magnificent. So, uh, Lars, I would like to personally thank you um, for taking the time to do this and all of our clients actually listening to your story and the story of ReadCloud and uh, the success that you have made it in the short period of time that it's been listed. So, from me, absolute congratulations. Um, I'm looking forward to watching... Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching the market cap uh, 10 times what it is today. And, you know, you guys have uh, done a magnificent job. So congratulations there. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you, Lars. <laughs>